Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Gordon Brown aka Morgan Cry who is the author of eight crime and thriller books along with a novella and a number of short stories. His novels are set in Spain, Scotland and the US with the latest Morgan Cry novel 31 Bones set in Spain. The sequel Six Wounds is now set for release next year. Gordon also helped found Bloody Scotland Scotland's International Writing Festival. He is also a DJ on local radio and runs a strategic planning consultancy. In a former life, Gordon delivered pizzas in Toronto, sold non-alcoholic beer in the Middle East, launched a creativity training business, floated a high-tech company on the London Stock Exchange, compared the main stage at a two-day music festival and was once booed by 49,000 people while on the pitch at a major football cup final. Gordon... Welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thanks very much, Paul. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. That's a, I mean, it's just a small summary of obviously the, the wide and varied uh, life that you've led. And we'll obviously get on to talk about all the, the books and, and everything that you've been involved in, particularly like some bloody Scotland. But I'm intrigued how it came about that 49,000 people at a cup final were booing you. So in a previous life, I used to work for tenants, the brewers. I was the brand director, so I was in charge of marketing in Scotland. And we, back in the 90s, sponsored the Cups. So Tennis Scottish Cup, as we called it. So in those days, what would happen is, come the final, unlike today, where there's a bit of razzmatazz, in the old days, what they did was they put a big red tee out on the pitch. And the, the teams had to line up at the top of the tee. And someone from the sponsors and the SFA had to go out and shake the hands of every player about three minutes before kickoff. They've stopped doing that. Well, I don't know if you remember, but in 97, uh, Hamden was being refurbed for the millennium. So they were taking the cup final round. It went to various places. And it was held at Ibrooks, but it was Kilmarnock versus Falkirk. And on the day, it was my turn to go on and say hello to the players. So about five minutes to three, what happened was you're sitting in the tunnel at Ibrooks. And I had, do you remember Jim Farry, the old chief executive or secretary for the Scottish Football Association? Not the most liked person on the planet, as far as the fans were concerned. Well, at three or five minutes to three, they announced, ladies and gentlemen, to to say hello to the teams. We have on the pitch Mr. Gordon Brown from the Brewers Tenants and Mr. Jim Farry from the Scottish FA. And to a person, 49,000 people <laughs> booed, right? And we're halfway down this red tee. And the booing, honestly, I still remember, the hairs are in the back of your neck. It's that loud. There's not a person in the place. And Jim Farry turns around to me and says, Gordon, they don't like you much, do they? <laughs> so I was, it was so I was hell of an experience. He was a funny guy. Jim Farry, there was a lot said. He was very official. If people remember him, the ones that do when he was on TV. But see, as a private individual, just dropped dead funny at times, just genuinely really warm, just had an official side to him. So that's yeah. how I get booed by 49,000 people. And to be fair, from, from my Celtic point of view, which I'm coming from, he, had, he did end up getting sacked for... Uh, for, for nope, no, no, I know. Yes, yes, there was. And football was always a treacherous place to be. We we tried to stay as neutral as possible. Well, obviously, uh, my my day job involves football, but this podcast involves books, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go into 
to talk about the books. I mentioned in the, the introduction, obviously, either as yourself, but also as your, your pseudonym, you've written eight crime and thriller books. And I, I noticed that I think the sequel to 31 Bones, Six Wounds, I take it that was originally meant to be coming out this year, but that's been put back given everything that's been going on. Yeah, it's COVID mucked up the whole publishing schedule for a lot of people and it was getting later and later and the book's got a summer element to it because it's set in Spain, holiday read, but the amount of people going abroad will be relatively low and also it was getting to the point where we're starting to say, look lads, it'd be better if we move it back and do it earlier next year. It just kind of makes sense given everything that's going on. At the time when the publishing deadline was agreed or the publishing date was agreed, I don't think anyone thought COVID was going to go on the way it was. I mean, I don't think anybody thought it would impact that heavily this summer, but it clearly is. So it's just a common sense thing to do. And at, at what point, and I'm sure you've been asked this before, at what point did you did you start writing as Morgan Crime? What was, what, what was the decision that, that made you decide to always have that kind of split writing personality? If I take you back to the beginning, and I can explain why I got to Morgan Cry, when I first wrote my first book, which is about more than 10 years ago now, it was a crime thriller called Falling, and it was about an accountant. I don't think there's many crime thrillers about an accountant. And, and I, it wasn't designed to, he, he just, he appeared in the book and wouldn't go away. And when I wrote that, it was a last throw of the dice, if I'm brutally honest. I, I was a marketing director for STV on a contract uh, back in the, the late 2000s and the contract was coming to an end and I tried my hand at writing and never got anywhere so what I decided to do was quit the job and have one last shot so I spent about four months in the summer writing it a month editing and sent it off and bizarrely and it was bizarre I got an answer from a publisher I only sent it to four and one of them came back and said yes although there is a story behind that it was a small publisher still around called Fledgling in Edinburgh and Alexander or Xander Wedderburn, who's the, the managing director, sent me an email saying, I really loved the first, because you know what you do, you send three chapters plus a synopsis, not the whole book. He loved it, said send the rest through. I was so excited, I just banged it through to him. You know, by your God, a publisher wants to read my book. Sent it through and he arranged to meet me for a coffee. So I went through to see him. And when, when I met him, he sits me down and he goes, I adored the first three chapters, not so much the rest. And I'm like, oh my God. He said, to be fair, he said, it was littered with typos, plot holes. And I'm like, really? Like, I'm not brilliant at that, but I, I thought I'd fixed it. I looked at my email when I went home, seeing the excitement of a publisher saying they wanted to see your manuscript. I sent a version that was at least a month and a half old, which was full of mistakes, changes, stuff. I hadn't fixed it. And he still managed to take the book. I was so going to say, still- you're lucky, because a lot of publishers would have went, yeah, I know, I know. And I keep thinking, if he had, he could have turned around and said, you know what, I liked the first three, but it was rubbish. It's, it was my fault. So what happened was I got onto this thing about writing as Gordon Brown, and I've written two series since. I wrote the, the Charlie Wiggs stuff, which I wrote one book in the UK, and that was taken in the US. And then what happened in the US, they asked for book two, right? So I, I wrote a book, that there's a second book to Falling that only went out in America. I then wrote an, a standalone called 59 Minutes, and I was talking about writing a series and I got talking to a guy called Alan Guthrie, who's an agent and also an author. And we were playing with this idea. I sent him an idea, which was a kind of thriller. But because it was quite kind of high concept, his view was it needs to be a bigger stage. So it turned into what became the Craig McIntyre series, which is actually set in the US. So what ended up happening was having written both the Falling books, the 59 standalone and the four Craig McIntyre books, 
I was looking to see what to do next. And it wasn't going to be a fifth McIntyre, although there's a chance that'll happen. And I was going to go back to Gordon Brown, but my problem has been, and I'll be brutally honest with you, the name Gordon Brown comes with problems. (laughs) As much as I keep thinking the other Gordon Brown will vanish, he keeps reappearing. Every time I think, right, he's going to retire from public life. He's at the Hay Literary Festival this year. He's quoting on independence. And what makes it really difficult is from a search engine and digital point of view, finding me is impossible. If you put Gordon Brown into a search engine, so I had a chat with uh, my agent at the time, and I suggested, why don't we look at doing something with a different name attached to it? But his view was, yeah, but you need to ring the changes. There's no point in trying to go back to where you were. And that's why I thought, right, I had an idea which was set in Spain, and I, I pitched it to him, and then I had a chat with a few other people. And I thought, if this works, I'll go with the name. And the name Morgan Cry, if you want to know where it comes from, my father's name was Morgan which was effectively when my grandmother's maiden name gave it to my dad. And uh, my dad was ex-police, ex-Glasgow police for 25 years. He's no longer with us. And cry was because it sounded a bit crimey. I just wanted something short. So when I did Morgan Cry, it was specifically to launch the new series. So anything in that series that comes down the line, Six Wounds, which is next, I've got a short story out, I've got another one coming out, will be under the name Morgan Cry. And that will specifically be for that series. Because I quite like that idea because, you know, some there are a few authors that do that. And I think it, I'm guessing it allows you then because it gives you that whole freedom to do stuff that you maybe hadn't done before. And it's almost like you're creating a whole new personality. And if you want to go back and write, as you say, another book in that series as Gordon Brown, that's fine. But then you've got a whole other sort of And I've series. got another book at the moment in the goal, which is going out on submission, which will go back the way. It won't be a Morgan Cry book. The Morgan Cry book will be for Daniela, for Spain, for the expat community out there. I've, I've got book two and I've got an idea of where book three would go. I've got, I, I'll wait till next year before they decide whether or not they want book three or anything beyond it. But I can see an arc of a story because it's just so much fun writing about that community out in Spain. It's, it's a great thing to do. It's, it's just full of joy because it's a whole set of characters I can play with. What was it someone called it the other day? Um, I'm trying to remember what they called it. It was it was something for nutters, and I can't remember what the first the, it will come back to me. It was like the perfect description of what I was writing, and I'm thinking, oh, I should use that. And now I've forgotten what it is. Do you actually find that do you have a different writing personality when you're writing as as yourself or as Morgan Cry? Or is it just it's just a different well, style of book? No, Morgan Cry. Well, I like to write in the first person and present tense, which is every book. Not not everything, but most of the books I've written have been first pre, first person, present tense. And I think that goes back to, I did a workshop when I was about 27, 28 with a girl called Mimi Lang, who was the writer in residence for Castle Milk years ago. And I tried to write stuff for her. And the only voice she liked was first person. She kept saying everything else she handed in. I didn't do it for that long. So what happens, the difference between Morgan Cry and uh, Gordon Brown, the McIntyre series will be Morgan Cry, it, there's more humour. It's a lighter touch and it's getting decidedly Glaswegian angle to it. In fact, to be honest with you, it's more like Falling, which is my first book. It's got that kind of feel about it. The difference in Falling is I wrote it from five different points of view, which for a first book was a bit daft because it was tough. So five voices, whereas this is one voice. So what I tend to find with Morgan Cry is it's, there's a more an element of fun in it. And also first person tends to keep the pace up. So you have to work quite hard because it can be a bit relentless. So you have to find ways of engaging the reader because if you just keep telling them what's currently happening it can become a bit tedious 
So it's a bit of a challenge. So by putting humour in and putting a bit of diversion in and stuff happening, it makes for a more interesting and fun book. But also I love first person because you, you, you can, but not to the same degree, you can't jump around. You can't suddenly be in London thinking what the guy down there is doing or in America. You have to look as if you're going through someone's eyes. So you have to be clever about how you get the backstory in there. Obviously, you know, we mentioned the fact that uh, Six Wounds is going to be delayed or it's now going to be coming out next year. But yeah. I take it over that that's not stopped you working in terms of writing. The fact no. that, you, you know, you've still got ideas going so that, so that actually at some point when things get green-lighted, you'll, you've got a whole raft of stuff that you know you're working on. I've written a short story, which will probably come out between now and Six Wounds with Daniela in it, because in 31 Bones, she, she has to work out what's going on. So there's a tiny little element of the Hercule Poirot thing going on there, which is like, we've got to try and figure out what the hell's going down. And she's, she's it in the book for it. I'll explain a bit about the book. In Six Wounds, it decidedly takes that a step further because there's a dead body at the beginning. I've never done one, which is a, a murder at the beginning of the book. And she has to figure it. So for the short story... I've taken my inspiration from, you know, if you ever watch an Agatha Christie Poirot movie, they've got the denouement at the end when Hercule stands up and says, right, wasn't he you? Couldn't have been you? Might have been you. That happened. The fish was yeah. dead. He could have been right. I've done a short story of Daniela, and it's all to do with someone who's stolen a pound note from the pub in 31 Bones, which is called Sibuska. And that will come out in between. So I've been writing that. And I've also, I'm working on another book at the moment, which is completely different again. That's not going to be a Morgan Cry book. So I've taken the opportunity to write a new one. And when I'm writing, I tend to be on a bit of a mission. So at the moment, I'm on about 2,000 words a day, if I can get it done, because that's how I write best. Years ago, I read, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Stephen King's book on writing. Yeah, yeah. Right. So uh, there's loads of good advice in it. But the three rules I most like in that is one is, he says, you know, if you're going to write a book, start, start writing. The reason he says that, and it sounds really obvious, is, you move from that phrase, I'm going to write a book, to I am writing a book. And that puts pressure on you. And if you tell anyone else, it puts pressure on you because they keep saying, where are you? The second thing in that is he also says, don't write about what you know, write about what you enjoy. Because everybody used to say, write about what you know, but I don't, I don't know anything about it. money laundering in Spain, you know, with experts. I, don't, I honestly don't know anything about it. <laughs> I just thought it was fun to write about. And then the third thing, from this point of view, was set yourself a target. Because if you're going to write a book and it's 80 or 90,000 words, it just feels like it will take forever. So if it's 1,000 words a day, 2,000 words a week, 500 words, whatever it happens to be, find a target you're comfortable with and then stay with it. And that way you'll get the book out the back end. Even if it's the worst thing you've ever written, at least you can edit it. What if, you know, if you don't write anything, what can you do with it? Nothing. So that tends to be the way I work. So at the moment, I'm working in a book and it, I'll get up about five, half five in the morning and try and get about 2,000 words out before I get to breakfast time if I can. Not all the time, but most days I try and do it. And that's how I work. And then when I finish this one, I'll tidy it up, put it away for a bit, come back to it. And then I'll probably kick off another one before I've even put that one out. It's just keep going. And that way, some miss, some hit. And if ever I become internationally famous, I will have so many books in the suitcase that I can dig out and hand to the publisher and go, well, you were looking for a book. I just happened to have eight. I mean, that's a very impressive daily word count. But if, when you break it down like that, then, you know, a first draft, within two or three months, you've got, a, well, less than that, you've got a, a full draft. Yes. I, was, 
I heard somebody other, the other day, it was an interview with a writer, and, and it was just, what's one, one bit of advice you would give to any writers? And she said, get your first draft done as quickly as possible, because that's the most important thing. Once you've yeah. got that, as you said, you can then go back, you might end up having to rewrite the whole thing, but rewriting or editing from a position of finishing something is much easier than thinking, well, I've still got to finish it. No doubt we'll talk about uh, more about your writing in the course of the podcast, but if, if I can take you to the first of the book choices that you've given me for yeah. the podcast today, and that's your a favourite book from childhood, and you just said any of the, the Hardy Boys books. Yeah, that's I couldn't pick one. If I had to pick one, it'd probably be What Happened at Midnight. I might, but I, to be honest with you, it probably is any of them. That was driven by the fact that, well, there was two things I didn't realise. One is I didn't realise that Franklin W. Dixon wasn't a person, right? I wasn't aware that the person that wrote The Hardy Boys was actually a series of authors. I didn't know that. So I had this vision. There was this guy somewhere in America churning out all this great stuff. The second thing is, it was the first time I read books. I'd probably read Ian and Blind and various other bits, but it's the first books I'd read where you were having to work hard to figure what's going on. It wasn't the narrative at the moment. It was the case of, right, okay, somebody's doing something to someone. I always used to say it was a bit like Scooby-Doo for adults, but it wasn't really adults. It was Scooby-Doo for older people. And also, it was that unrealistic sense of what's achievable when you're that age. Because it came from a world in the 40s, 50s, and 60s when it was a case of two young lads of that age could go off and do something like that. In fact, funnily enough, I've taken inspiration from the Hardy Boys for the book I'm currently uh, writing. I, only it's two young guys in Glasgow that are a bit younger doing the same thing. So that got me it because I just chewed them up. And to be fair, I even read a few Nancy Drew, which at the time, definitely, I, I was in the south side of Glasgow when I grew up. That wasn't something you could admit readily that you were reading <laughs> Nancy Drew books. But that sort of book really intrigued me. And, and it, along with the other one I used to read was Tom Swift books. And Tom Swift's kind of science fiction, I used to read that. That was, I, I was my staple diet. I think I just chewed all of them up as a kid do you think as well that that puts that idea in your head of the you know like in a, a series of not you know given the fact you've ended up going on and when you're writing a novel you're, you're maybe then thinking how's this going to work as a series and i've got another idea and that maybe goes back to to what you, you start reading in childhood and that whole idea of a series it does and i think the other thing is that when you're reading a book you hear a lot of readers will say i do the same thing they're desperately waiting for what is the next of that author if they like the character I mean, if you're a ranking fan, what is Rebus going to do? You know, it's that sort of like, what, what's, what's going to happen? Or Canon Perry, if it's um, Val. But if that, for me, is one of the real wins as an author, if you've got people saying to you, all right, what's next, what's next, what's next, and they're wanting to eat it up, standalones are always more problematic because they can be hit or miss. You might like one, but not like the next one. But people get into characters, love it. And that, that that's what happened to me. It's exactly why I get into where I got to. Not all the time, I have to say, I'm a big Stephen King fan, and he very rarely does that. He, he spe- I mean, he does do it. The, the Bill Hodges trilogy is fantastic, and he has done it now and again. But I just feel that it kind of instilled something into me is what's going to happen next? Where are these characters going? And the other thing is, if you invest that much effort in a book, there's more to be said about those people. Yeah. You know, if you just throw them away and say, right, I'm moving on to something else, it kind of feels a bit of a waste to me. It feels like, you know, those characters can grow and change. And also, I think in that kind of world of crime and thriller books, the audience, they're always looking. They want you to take them on that journey. As you yeah. say, if they like your first book, they're almost expecting that you're going to give them more. Yeah. And you get stuff like, why haven't you written more? It's just like, you know, they finish one and you should have another 60. And you think, it does take a wee bit to write them. You know? <laughs> yeah. Wait till everybody hears that you're writing 2,000 words a day. There'll be no excuses for you. Then. 
Yeah, no, I keep working out. If I did that every day for 365 days, I keep thinking, look how many books I could get out the door. But you need a break now and again. Again, I was just doing a wee bit of research into the Hardy Boys. I mean, I think they still, apparently they still sell, because it's kind of that franchise that's been going on for years and years. There's over a million copies sold annually. It's timeless as well. Well, it's not timeless because it's set in its time. It's of its time, you know, like no mobile phones. No, You know, the, the, the memories of it are, it's of its time, but that works because... It doesn't need all that stuff on top of it. There's also an innocence about it, which is why I think it sells well. I think any of the younger boots that have got that sort of innocence about them, I think some of the YA where they lost that innocence are always a bit of a struggle for young adults. You know, a lot of them have got much grittier. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that innocence is such a nice place to disappear into. You know, is there really much violence in it? No, not really. The odd punch and the odd this, that and the other. Is there reference to, to alcohol and drugs? I can't even remember if there's even anything in that sort of area. There is, but it's always that sort of, you know, baddies smuggling something on a cove or, you know, it was hidden inside a church for 200 years and then they found it. In, or it's them fixing what the police can't fix, but there's not the downside to it. And I think that's got universal appeal. Because I think a good a good thriller, regardless of what age, as you say, there'll be some, there probably was at the time, there'll have been books for aimed at young adults. They wouldn't have called it that as a genre no, then. It would have probably been more maybe realistic and gritty, but there's always a place for those other books as well because there's a sense of escapism as well. But I think yeah. back then, there was no books for anyone over 12 and under 18. I mean, literally, there was that huge gap in the middle, which was, it was Enid Blind or it was Hardy Boys or it was the rubber dub. I can't even remember half the books that were out there. Yeah, And then there was a big leap towards what became adults. And that gap's now filled. There's now books for everything in between. But I think, therefore, what happens when I was a kid is you stretch those books beyond the years. You were reading them far after. By now, I would have found other stuff by the time I was 13 or 14. But back then, you didn't. But it also meant you read it all. Because I actually, you, you're going to ask me my, my favourite book from my teenage years, and it was literally because I ran out of Hardy Boys books that I found something completely different. Well, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a nice seamless link. And uh, i just like to say to people, we have not rehearsed that, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> we, we're just jumping on to the teenage choice, and that is The Fog by James Herbert. Which is night and day to the Hardy Boys. And there's a really nice story, in fact, or it's the reason I write. When I was about 15, my grandmother and my grandfather stayed in Fraserburgh on the northeast shoulder of Scotland. And my gran was a big library person. And I was a lazy bugger. And I was lying in the bed one day on a Saturday, Saturday morning. My gran said she was going to the library. Did she get me anything? And I had a list of the Hardy Boys books, but I said, as long as it's not any of these, literally, it was like, these are the ones I've read. And she came back with The Fog by James Herbert. Right? Now, I didn't know anything about it, but she'd gone to the librarian, and the librarian had said, no, there, are, there is no more. Why don't you try this? She said how old I was. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've read The Fog, but The Fog is nothing like The Hardy Boys, right? It's out and out horror. It's a mist that comes out of a crack in the earth in a town and, and turns people crazy. And before you know it, people are lopping off each other's private parts. Like, I was gobsmacked. I sat on a Saturday afternoon and read the whole thing in one go. I never, I didn't even know you could write about things like that. And then went out and bought James Herbert The Rats. I then got into it because I bought Lair, Domain. I, I loved James Herbert. But there was this world. I thought, oh, my God, are you allowed to write this? Are you allowed to actually say these words? Are you allowed to describe this stuff? I don't think my grand ever knew. I don't think she had a clue that what the book was about. And even now, I mean, it's okay, so it's been, there's lots of worse. But at the time, James Herbert was 
almost a master of horror, as was at the time. And that, that's what got me into thinking, my God, you could write anything, can you? You, you don't have to stick to like, uh, like Hardy Boys or whatever it happens to be. And that's what got me really excited about books, got me into Stephen King, then got me further on. That, that just became what hooked me. Because when, when you'd sent the, the, the list through, and, and obviously I was just kind of checking in terms of wee, wee bits of information about James Herbert, I remember reading The Rats and Lear when I was a teenager. And the first thing that struck me when I had remembered it, I'm thinking, my parents probably, they, they obviously maybe didn't realise what was the content, because I, I would have just been a teenager, and they obviously have, have brought those books out of the house, because I keep thinking, I'm going to have to ask them, because they, they would have no idea, and I'm sure if they had even the slightest clue what was in those books, there's no way. Or either that, or they just, there was a, more a sense of you got to a certain age, and you just say there was maybe that gap between kids and adults, and so you maybe you're, you started reading adult books at a younger age than maybe they do now. My gran was so prim and proper. There's no chance she knew what was in it. None. She would never, she wouldn't, she no way would she get. So clearly the librarian sold it to her on the basis, you got a 15-year-old boy, he'll like this, which I did. I have to say the librarian got it right. And from then on in, I never looked back. That changed. But I agree, if my gran had known what's in that book, I reread the first, I can't remember, it was a chapter not so long ago, and I thought, how could my gran would have a fit? She would she a complete canary if she thought that's what she'd brought into the house. And the fact, I then went out and got everything else, and not just James Herbert, I then went looking for what else around there, just changed what I read. But you know, it's kind of like, you know, that way, obviously the librarian knows their job and knows their audience, even without speaking to you. Yeah. It's the same, if you get a good librarian or a good teacher or somebody who puts the right book into teenage hands, then you've got, certainly you've got a reader for life. And in, in your case, suddenly there's something that goes, well, we can write about things like that. And that, that yeah. changes maybe your perspective from what you want to do. And that, that's the wonder of librarians or people in bookstores. That's the joy of going in is that you can say, I've read this or I haven't read this or I'd like something around that, and they give you something. What's magical about that is they, they often give you things that you've never read before that suddenly take you off in a new day. I, I adore doing that. It's just asking. I, I, do, I did it during lockdown with a couple of the bookshops. I said, just send me something that's completely left field to give me something new because otherwise you get a tendency to read more of what you want to read. And it was the one that happened to me that this year was, I think I say it later on, was or last year was Lou Bernie, who's an American writer, wrote a book called November Road. And Lynn Anderson and Craig Robertson, who are on the board with me at Bloody Scotland, recommended it as a book. I, I loved it. It's probably my favourite book last year. I just adored the book. I would never have picked it up. And that, that to me is why librarians are worth their weight in gold. If you can do that to a kid, and get a kid engaged in reading, that's magic. I don't know if you've seen it on Twitter. There's a, I'm sure that it's called the Big Green Bookshop. They're quite active on Twitter. It's an independent bookshop down in England. And yeah. they do a thing where you can subscribe for a year and they, and they ask for your preferences, things like, you know, the genres you read, the kind of books that you like. And then they'll send you a book a month. They'll choose a book for you. I did it a couple of years ago and it was, it was actually quite exciting because obviously somebody's then looking at the things, your preferences and thinking, well, they might like that. And in some of the books that, and also if they send you a book that's a doubler, they'll give you another book, they'll just exchange it. Some of the books that they sent, I thought, I probably would never have picked that yep. up. Kind of similar to what you're that. saying. It's a really great idea, actually. It's a bit like, uh, I love my live music, which is a bit of a shame at the moment. And one of the things, we'll go to 13th Note or King Touch to see a bunch of bands you don't know. And one of the things King Touch do on the wall is they name the band, but underneath it says, if you like, and then it names three famous bands, you'll like them. 
So it, 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 literally, you choose it on the, you know, if you like A, B, and C, then you might like them. If you like this, you might like these guys and stuff. I love that. that. To me, that's like, it's, oh, I'll go and see them. And, and that to me is the same as a book person who said, well, if you like that and that and that, try this. Yeah, and I think, I think that's, I had a friend of mine or a friend of my wife's who ran a bookshop for about 12 years. And she did that thing where they put the little cards underneath the books, which were reviews, but reviews by people she knew. I did a few, my wife did a few. It wasn't famous people's reviews, but it always had a recommendation under it as if you like this, you might also like, which I thought was a great idea. Yeah, sometimes I think as well, booksellers are underestimated in terms of the knowledge that they have oh, yeah. of the like, books. And it's, it's more than just working in a shop and putting the book in the bag and taking your money. They are a kind of, kind of font of information and, and knowledge on, on books. Through Body Scotland, we deal with lots of the oh, Waterstones and I go to see the independents. That knowledge is hard won because it's it's won by reading themselves, but it's won by listening to what people are talking about when they come in. Because you can't have read every book. It's that assimilation of knowledge. Lots of people talk them, oh, that book's got something about it. People keep going on about it. Or, or you like this, you might like that. Try this, try this. And I think that's a great thing to do. You, working in a bookshop is something you find that the people that are good at it love books. They just adore it. And it's better, if you go into the bookshop, you can always tell it's the ones that will spend time with you. That happens a lot. They're more than happy to help you go around and say, what about, try this, what about that? To me, that, that's the joy of going into a bookshop. I know online's very convenient, but it, you kind of, you have to break out of that. And the, you know, whether it's a library or a bookshop, that to me is that magical moment of, here's something you may never have chosen off the sheet. You said it, I may never have chosen that. And then you find a whole new genre or a whole new an author or whatever it happens to be. I, I just think that's great. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, and my guest, Gordon Brown, a.k.a. Morgan Cry. And Gordon, you know, we were talking there about people recommending books, so I'm now putting you on the spot and asking you, for your choice uh, of a book that you would recommend to anyone, and it's a book called Nightmare Blue by Gardner, is it Dozwa and, Dozwa and Alec Effinger? This is the weirdest book, honestly. I, I discovered this book years, a, a long time ago, and read it all in one go, right? And it is a crime book, but I, I would not, I was into science fiction, so I didn't know I was picking a crime book. I, I used to love my sci-fi. I used to read Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell, uh, I used to read an awful lot of God, everything from Stephen ba- Well, Stephen Baxter was kind of later on. Jetter. Uh, there's a whole bunch of sci-fi readers I used to. And I picked this up one day. And I'll tell you the story. And the reason I'll tell you, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. In effect, summing this book up is really difficult. There's an alien race land on Earth. It's set in Germany, the book. But the aliens, they land all over Earth. They set up what are effectively fortresses. And then what they do is... They, they appear peaceable, but actually what they have is a drug, and the drug is what they call nightmare blue. And effectively, the drug is instantly addictive. One shot, and you cannot do without it. And what they do is they set out to uh, give the drug to the world leaders. In other words, take over Earth through the back door, because once you've got it, you're going to do what you say. There's a, a, a German private detective called Karl Jaeger, who is a bit laid back, and, and he, he gets onto the case and has to try and break into where these Ains are. They're called Ains are Lords are, and they've got Ains are Hounds that kill you and all sorts of daft things. And he teams up with a, an alien that looks, a, in my mind, looks a bit like a football with 50 legs. 
called Corkle Sendigen, who is a worker who's been lifted off his own planet and brought to Earth as a slave. And between the two of them, they have to defeat the Angel Lords, right? That's the story. And every time I tell anyone that, they think, really? And I go, yeah, that is, that is genuinely the story. I have read that book six times, from cover to cover six times. I've still got it next to my bed. The reason I like it is, I can't figure the reason I like it. So the strangest thing happened, I was on the one of the crime book clubs on Facebook, and someone was asking me the question about, what, what have you read recently that's a bit off the wall? And I mentioned that book, and I thought, I, I, that has to, it's definitely out of print. And, and whether you can get it, I don't know. Didn't they come back 24 hours later? I managed to get a copy, I'm going to read it, and I thought... I have never heard of anyone else reading this. You're asking me to recommend a book. I have never met anyone that's read it, never heard of anyone that's read it. And I thought, oh, this guy's going to read this and think it's the biggest pile of whatever. He liked it. It makes no sense. I, honestly, read it. It's just such a weird story. It works. So how did it, you stumble upon it? And do you know what? I can't even remember. I got asked that question and it was a battered copy I got. I didn't get it as new. So I can assume, there's only two things I assume. One is it might have been, it wouldn't have been a charity shop back then. It would have probably been a book sale, jumble sale or something like that. Or I might have been in holiday, although that's less likely. But it wasn't, I didn't go into a bookshop. I'd love to say someone gave me this, but I cannot remember where I got it. I just remember reading it and then reading it again. And I, the last time I read it, oh, it was a couple of years ago now, but I've still got it there. And I don't know why. And every time I read it, I keep thinking, I'm going to find this rubbish. I'm going to hate this. And every time I read it, I don't. So I, I, if you can find it, feel free. It is sci-fi. Asimov does it really well. Asimov does with the iRobot series, that great thing of sci-fi and mystery with crime with Daniel Oliver, is it? The robot. He does that thing where he uses the three laws of robotics and breaks them, and you have to figure out what went wrong, and the robot does it. This was one of the few sci-fi books I read where genuinely it's a crime book because of what's going on. It's not really, but it is. But it's that whole combination of human and alien. And it kind of falls back. I love Aliens, the film, but this has nothing to do with that. And I love Blade Runner. A Blade Runner I adore. I kind of think this is more Blade Runner-ish. It's the same idea, but it's just such a weird book. But I would say to if you can find it, read it. I mean, do you, you reread a lot of books or is it just certain ones that you go back to? There's, a couple I've read and reread. I reread Christine recently because Christine was a real marker book in my life by Stephen King. I was working in a bar in um, Loch Lomond when I was 18 or 19. I can't remember how old I was. I might have been a bit older. Uh, one summer, and because of the bar we were working in, during the summer in the afternoon, it was relatively quiet, and I was in the lounge. So you could be sitting for a while, but you were still on shift. So we just took to sitting in the corner reading the book and Christine caught my imagination. It shifted me. I ended up reading almost everything by Stephen King. And I went back to it. And the reason I went back to it is I always thought he'd played a really clever trick, which was it's not really a horror novel. It's more a story about a young kid and an old man and their relationship around this car. And yes, there is horror in it. But actually, when I reread it, there's more in it about the horror side and the car side than I remember. It wasn't a disappointment, but it wasn't the moment where it's nightmare blue. Every time I've read it, I've loved it. Because that's always the danger of rereading a book that you love. Yeah. But as you say, one of these times you're, you're thinking, I'm, I'm not going to enjoy it. I, I watch films endlessly. I mean, I'm, I'm, my wife hates the fact I've watched James Bond 1 through 20-odd in order. One time I went through this phase of when I got to the end, I just started again. And like, there's other films come on and she just walks out the door. She thinks she can't possibly watch this again. Like, really? And I can. But I call that chewing gum for the brain. 
I, for me, that's how you relax. I know what's happening. Yes, I love seeing new stuff, but there's some stuff I want to go back to. Books, not so much. But that book, for some reason, and, and honestly, I bound, next person that will read it will go, what? Yeah, listen, I'm tempted, actually, to... And then you're, bit, you, you're either going to get a, an email that's going to thank you or, or abuse you. Yeah, I know, I know. I suspect it might be the last. No, it it's good. I like the book. We mentioned, I mentioned right at the, the start, you've mentioned it a couple of times about you're involved in Bloody Scotland, the, yeah. the crime writing festival. How did that come about in terms of, you know, wanting to start a festival to showcase, you know, either new or established crime writers? It was a bit odd. When my first book came out, I joined the CWA, the Crime Writers Association. And the chair in Scotland is uh, an author called Alex Gray, or was at the time Alex Gray. And I went to a few, they used to have lunchtime, you know, it's just dinner, you know, lunchtime, chat over, books over, something to eat. And Lynn Anderson and Alex had, had been down at Harrogate, the Crime Writing Festival, a few years before. And they'd been taught this idea, which was about how many Scots, I think, were at Harrogate. I mean, there was like Stuart McBride, Ian Rankin, Val McDermott, Denise Mira. There was a whole bunch of people there. And they were saying, they, they were saying, well, why has there never been one for Scotland, given us all the Scottish writers? And then you go back to Willie McIlvanny and you think of all the history of Scottish crime writing. And my involvement was, I was at the table, and because I'd had a kind of tangential involvement with festivals through Tea in the Park, not that I ever organised anything, we were the sponsor. I uttered the words, well, how hard can it be? I remember saying it. <laughs> and and. About two weeks later, me and Lynn met at um, Princess Gardens, where the two of us, it, it was just the start of a conversation because there's so many people now have been involved in it to get it up and running. But it was a case of what was possible. And it kind of just went from there. I think what worked was we were slightly overambitious in that instead of just running one day, which would have been easy enough to do, and maybe doing it in Glasgow or Edinburgh, we kind of chose Stirling because there was I write in Glasgow and the Edinburgh Book Festival in Edinburgh. Stirling kind of felt different, the heart of Scotland, there's Bannockburn, so there's kind of blood. But we, we, we also ran it over a weekend and we ran three events at the same time. So rather than one event, which at the time was madness, like given we didn't know how to run a festival, but we got a lot of good people on board. I mean, loads of Craig Robertson come on, was, was there, Jenny Brown, who's the agent, was there, Dom Hastings, who, was the, uh, who helped us in terms of the, or ran the stuff for us. We had a lot of good people to do it. But I think what worked was two things. It's been waiting to happen. I think that's, that, that desire to talk about Scottish crime literature had been waiting to happen. And people wanted to see the people. There weren't many opportunities to go and see them, not as many as, as we were giving. It was genre specific. So therefore, we weren't saying, you're going to watch, you know, it's a bit of romantic and then it's nonfiction. It was very much you'd go for the weekend and you would see the stuff you love. But the other thing we also made a view of was new Scottish stuff is a big part of it. And also showcasing international. We've had some of the biggest writers on the planet at it. But the new stuff, to our view, was always part of the ethos, which was whoever the new authors are this year, two, three, four, five years down the line, are going to be the biggies. And they need to get oxygen or publicity. And that's what we were giving them. It took a while to get going, but year one even worked better than we thought. And it's now just growing and growing and growing and growing. Is there not an element of it as well where... There's an element people can pitch their ideas in terms of... Yeah, there's quite a few. So I, I, I come up, one of the ideas I come up with was a thing called Crime in the Spotlight, which we run, which is kind of taken from a music, going to music where you get a support band. So what you do is you get three minutes before a main act on stage, whether it be Ian Rankin or Lee Child or whoever it is that year, you get a new author who's able to read to a big audience. We use the Albert Hall, which is a big venue in Stirling, holds about 750. So new authors get a chance to read just like literally two pages in who they are. 
We've got a thing called Pitch Perfect where you can pitch your idea and then what happens is it's usually two in the book world and two two agents that that will listen to it and then pick a winner. And some of those have gone on to, to have books. So we've managed to move that forward. We've we've done a lot around uh, encouraging new authors uh, debut panels. So in other words, here's your chance to come on and talk about it. But the, the, we always went for the angle that it's not just a talking heads festival. So like Craig Robertson came up with the idea of the Scotland v England authors football game, which has gone down really well. We do Crime at the Coup, which is what the authors do that isn't writing. I, can you play a guitar? Can they sing a song? It's the fastest selling venue we have. Usually sells out in about three minutes every time it's announced. It's very much about trying to give new authors a chance to get out. And I, I like the fact that the established authors are so good with them. When I do Crime in the Spotlight, you're taking authors back to see the biggest writers on the planet. And it's, you know, like really big writers. They are so good with the debut authors. It's such a nice thing to see. And that just from us, because those, Graham McRae Burnett, before he wrote uh, His Bloody Project, was that was what he read on stage before it became what it became. And we've got a number of authors that have done that. Because it strikes me, and it's always struck me that, I mean, I think the writing community is generally very supportive and encouraging, but it's always struck me in particular that the kind of Scottish crime writing community, there's a real positivity. There's almost a kind of solidarity that they want you to do well, you want the next person to do well. And I think, obviously, that's kind of fused into that festival, where, as you say, somebody who's really successful is wanting to see the next person, you know, because it's not a threat. It's just a, you know, it's an encouragement rather than, seeing it as some sort of threat to your, your status. And that's the difference is, it's not as if they're going to stop buying your books to buy the other ones. I mean, it's technically, I suppose you could argue, but that's not the case. I think the other thing is that the, the more the genre sells, the more everyday sells. That tart noir, which some people like the term, some people don't like the term, but it's certainly got a bit of kudos when you go to certain parts of the world. It's certainly known that there's people that have been at Willie who kind of kicked it all off with the Laidlaw series. And then you've got Val McDermott and Ian Rankin who kind of took it on and pushed it forward. Then you've got the next raft of writers, then the next raft and the next raft. And one of the things we did was we do the McIlvany Prize, which is the Crime Book of the Year Award. But a couple of years back, we started the debut prize for the debut authors. And that's interesting because that's, you know, your first book that's out the door. And again, I come back to the fact they will be the ones in the future that will be the Ian Rankers of the vowels on the main stage with a bit of luck. And they will encourage someone else to come along after. I do something with uh, three other crime authors called Four Blokes in Search of a Plot. So this myself one with uh, Douglas Skelton. Yeah, so there's Douglas Skelton, Neil Broadfoot, and Mark Leggett and me. We started this three or four years ago. Literally in an hour on stage, we make a crime story up live. The audience pick a weapon, the audience pick a protagonist. One of his types of 100-odd words or so, while the other three are talking to the audience. The author then reads where they got to, the audience then choose who's next to write the next 100 words. And over the space of an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, we're doing it in May for the UK Crime Book Club. We're doing one in May. We're doing it online on Zoom. And that's the four of us have been doing that. We've done it in Spain. We've done it all over Scotland. We've toured it. We've been online with it. And again, it's just a bunch of crime writers who literally didn't know each other when we started out. I mean, is that enjoyable? But at the same time, in that live audience, and you've only got an hour, there must be a wee bit of pressure when it's your turn to sit down and type 100 words. I think, well, there's two things. One is the pressure's taken off by the fact you have to wear what is called the tea cosy of inspiration. So <laughs> if you're typing, there's a tea... It, it, the reason it started, when we first did the gig, we didn't actually do it as four blokes. We did it as part of a Scottish Book Trust Week. 
uh, Laura Jones, who was in charge of it at the time, asked us to do, there was a kind of, one year there was a Twitter thing when you got half an hour of a Twitter handle, you wrote, started writing a story, then another author picked up the Twitter account. The next year we did it on Facebook. And we didn't do it quite now how we did it. We wrote a story live, but while one was writing, the other three weren't doing anything. So the one that was writing would take themselves off the picture to concentrate. And when they put it back on, we were all wearing stuff in our head just for it, just because we were bored. It then became when you're on stage, you have to wear the tea cosy while you're writing. So it kind of takes the edge off. I actually don't find it that hard. You just got to ignore what's going on around you and just write. The four of us have got into a way of doing it. No, you can go at fourblocksearching.com. We've put about eight or nine of the stories up there. They make no sense at all. They, they can be about anything. You know, we get asked the weirdest things. What was it last time? It was the protagonist was a Melda Marcos and the weapon was a poisoned ice cube. And we have no idea what they're going to ask us before we start. Literally, we do, we draw when we were in Spain, we had about 120 people in the room and we just put the cozy out, the, the tea cozy out. And it had a bunch of like people had written protagonists and the rest of it. And then literally it's just go. And, and it, it can be anything. What was it? Rabbi Burns and a kite? Or I can never remember. It can be anything. It's a brilliant idea. It works well. And it's good fun to do. And in between is good because the audience are keen on asking questions about writing, books and all the rest. So there's a kind of double format there at the same time. But uh, you have to be careful. What we always try to do is keep it fresh because some of us have got a habit of putting stuff like... It's a bit of a hospital pass if you can. See if you can leave the end of your bit in a place that's going to make it really difficult for the others to continue. You, you go, but the downside is you can be voted again to go next yourself. Sometimes you can hang yourself out to dry. But it's what we're, we've, we did one just recently for Southside Fringe Festival, and we're doing one in May for a UK Crime Book Club. If I can take you on from the book that you would recommend to anyone and to a book that you could not be paid to read again and the one you've chosen is Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I apologise to Tolkien fans out there. I really do. I, I, I kind of get it. I've watched the movies. I quite like The Hobbit. I read The Hobbit. I actually quite like The Hobbit. I, I just, there's two moments in the book. There's one moment, and I, I can never remember what it is. It's either in Elrond or whatever it is. They start talking about the son of the son of the father of the... There's a whole section on the legacy of all the people and how they get to who's the son of Aragon and he's the this, that and the other. And I think I got there twice and both times walked away. Like, I just thought, I, I just... I don't need to know this. I'm sure it's really interesting. And I think once I kind of got a wee bit up the mountain and then got bored with it. And I don't, I, it sounds so bad because I, I meet talking fans who don't... They would have loved if he'd written another 50 books. Yeah, the fact they're making a TV series for, what is it they're spent on it? 340 million quid already to make the TV series they're making in New Zealand. There's massive fans out there, but I couldn't recommend someone read it because I just feel you might love it, but to be honest with you, I just struggled like crazy with it. There are other books. I mean, I, I used to always finish a book. I used to always finish a book regardless, and now I don't. If I don't like a book, I now put it down. I, I just don't have enough time to spend reading it. And sometimes you've got to give a book a bit longer because some books take off, you know. But I'm sorry, and I hate, <laughs> hate to say it, but I just wouldn't recommend it to someone. Do you know, I've never read it. I mean, I think there's something like ridiculous, like over 150 million copies sold. I've never oh. read it. And, and I don't know whether... I've spoken to people who have read it. Some people love it and some people don't. I think there's a certain age. It seems to be... I think if I hadn't read it in those early teenage years, then it's difficult the chances are of going back later on and, and reading that become much lower. 
Um, in terms of, you know, obviously it's difficult to recommend the book as well. You mentioned uh, interesting how you've changed your reading habits. You know, you used to force yourself to read a book. At what point did you kind of realise, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to read books that I'm enjoying. It wasn't that long ago. I'd say it's about the time I started seriously writing. I think I got to there. I think for two reasons. One is that writing takes up time and I struggle to read when I'm writing. I do do it. I'm doing it in the moment, but I struggle a little bit with it. I think it's partly because I can read some really good books and think, oh my God, that's brilliant. Like how bad are mine compared? <laughs> so I don't want to do that just before I sit down to read, to write. Or the other thing is, oh, hey, wait a minute, hang on. That's quite a nice thought. Not an idea, but they write it in a certain way and I don't want it to influence what I'm writing because I'm bad enough. I write to music. I have music on when I write all the time. And there's a distinct change. If I've got trance dance, which I love and still do, old trance dance, or something more modern, you can almost tell what I was writing to. So what's happened is, and because of that, I've then read a lot less. And therefore, when I am reading, I need to be really engaged with it. Yep. So I've been reading books recently, which is quite good, because I get forced to enforce. That's a terrible thing to say. Because I'm doing the Bloody Scotland Book Club, I'm chairing the next one. I read the three books for that. And because I had to read them, I then said, right, I'll give this my time to do it. I'll actually sit. And they were really good. Really, really enjoyed it. But the rest of them, I kind of, even authors I've loved, I've given in on a couple of Stephen Kings just because I just, I, I thought that's a terrible thing to do. Actually, I fell out of love with him completely. And then kind of came back in with uh, later books. But I just get to that point now. I think, you know what? I'm not enjoying this. I'm just going to put it down and start something else. I mean, you mentioned earlier on that you, your kind of habit is getting up at like five, half five in the morning and writing. Yeah. Is it quite important then, like in terms of, to an extent, time management, you know, particularly when you are a writer and you're working from home in order that you have some sort of focus, otherwise the day can kind of stretch away from you if you don't kind of have an organisation or a plan of what you're going to do? I think what I'll find is if I haven't done it earlier, it's in my head that I should have done it and it gets worse as the day goes on and, and it doesn't help the day. It doesn't help me get anything else done because I think, no, I've set myself a target. I'm going to try and write this, especially if you're on a deadline, that's even worse. Because I feel better in the morning, that drives me to do it. I mean, I know some authors who don't start writing until 11 at night. They, they need to get rid of the day. They need to get rid of everything. They need to be able to sit down with no interruptions. I'm the opposite. I like to get it out of the way. So for me, that, that's the important thing for me is if I don't do that, what I'll find is later in the day, I'm starting, I should have done, I, wrote, I need to write. The other reason I do it is that I wrote most of, not now, but most of my early books, I wrote in planes and trains because I was working. I mean, I wrote most of the McIntyre series on the United Air, what is it, UA61 from Glasgow to Newark and back because I was out twice a month to New York working with a client. And I wrote most of my books sitting in a plane at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning or at seven o'clock coming home at night. Because so I'm, I can sit down and do it. So what I find is I will do it later, but I prefer now I've got the chance to say, right, I've got that done. And it's easy. There's a million things. I mean, it's changed, but the world's biggest writer killer is Holmes Under the Hammer. <laughs> it's just like, it's such, there is no format to that program whatsoever that couldn't be done in five minutes. Here's the house before, here's what it looks afterwards, and this is what they made. And you can do three of those. It takes an hour and a half to do that, and yet I have to switch it off. I'm not as bad now. I've kind of moved out of that. But at one point, it was, oh, home's in the ham and a cup of tea sounds quite good. You mentioned the, the Bloody Scotland Book Club and the three books you had to read for that, which takes us on to the last question, which was, 
the last book you read. Yep. So the books you're currently reading. So the, the three books in the series, or, or the three books for the, the book club are What They Knew by Marion Todd, November Road by Lou Bernie, which you mentioned already, and The Distant Echo by Val McDermott. So there's me, uh, Jonathan Whitelaw, Frankie Barr, and uh, Lou Fairbairn are reviewing the books. I've just had to read them. It was a nice choice. We had a kind of freedom of choice. We're, we're still putting the book clubs only on its second go. There's going to be other months. In fact, funnily enough, Lynn Anderson's doing the next one. And we had to choose books, so we kind of had a range. I kind of, November Road came from me because I read it last year, and I just thought it's something I would recommend to people to go and look at. Marion was, uh, from a debut author point of view, was in the debut prize last year. I was involved with the debut prize last year. And this is her fourth in the series, so it was kind of a newer book. And Val's, we chose her. It's difficult to choose one of Val's books. But because it was the introduction of Karen way back, it was the first book that she actually appeared in. Although not much in it, we decided that was a good place to start. It's been really good because, funnily enough, I kind of read both Val's first uh, Why and the Bud and Ian's Rebus first books not that long ago, just because I just wanted to read something new. So the Val one was was interesting because it's set back in time. So I really liked that because it was written back then and it's set even further back. Marion's is very much of the moment, but has an element of the past in it. And November Road set in the 60s around the assassination of JFK. And they're very, very different. So for me, it was because I had to read them. And they're all enjoyable. I'd recommend them all to anyone out there that's looking for something to read. And how does that work if people want to get involved in the book club? Easy. Facebook, uh, look up uh, Bloody Scotland Book Club on the Facebook. Just hit like, and then we're on live on Facebook on the... So it's the 26th of April. It's the last Wednesday of each month at night. It's a freebie. Just go on. It's on for an hour. We have different reviewers on each week or each month reviewing. And we announce... On, so when I do mine, at the end, we'll announce what the books are for the next one in case people want to read them. Yeah, and what sort of response? Because it's a great idea, actually. Very good. We were, I, I, I can't remember how many people signed up. I think we had about 1,400-odd within the first couple of weeks of just signing up, getting people on board. And there's quite, we're, we're building the interaction online, so what we're getting is people talking about the books because we encourage them to talk about the books and talk about other books that are involved in But I think what's good is, again, it's back to that librarian bookseller thing. We're recommending three books that they may well never have picked up. doesn't mean they'll like them. I mean, that's the thing about books. You know, people may say, well, I don't like them. But again, I think the whole purpose of a book club is to get you to read stuff that you probably wouldn't have picked up on your own. And that's that's kind of where... So we've kind of... Craig Craig Robertson did the first one. There is a bit of a saying, well, could we pick a bit of an older one, a bit of a different one, a bit of a newer one, rather than the same thing each time? Because it's one of those things that I've never been in a book club, but I remember a, a while back I did a couple of night classes in Scottish literature. And one of the things that I really enjoyed, apart from reading books and again, discovering books that I maybe hadn't read or would never have read before, it's just listening to someone else and their take on the book. So you've got yeah. your own idea and, and what you got out of it, but then somebody will say something and you go, I never thought of that. Now, you, you might absolutely vehemently disagree with them, but again, that's a great thing just to be able to chat and disagree about what a book is. It also gives you insight into a book because you miss things. You read yeah. a book and you read one and they say, no, no, this was really about the relationships between those people. And you think, oh God, I saw it was. But you kind of go past it. I think that works really, really well. It's like the one I'm writing and reading at the moment is Denzel's new book, Denzel Myrick's new book for Any Other Truth, which is the uh, D.I. Daily series, which is Kinlock, it's set in, for Kinlock, read Campbelltown, which is where it's actually from. Uh, and I just got a proof copy because he's with the same publisher as me. So I've literally 
just started it in terms of reading it. But I love Denzel's got a really good turn of phrase and there's humour in there and there's also intrigue. And what he does, which I think is quite a clever thing, is for a series, he always has a completely different setup for the book. There'll be something about it he sets it in a completely different way, whether it's somewhere back in time or whether it's a completely different premise each time. So for me, I've just started it, so I'm just getting into it just now. Is that quite? I mean, is that quite exciting as well? Because you're obviously getting to see it before before the rest of us. Yeah, because I can tell them how bad it is, <laughs> and then no one will buy it, which isn't going to happen. <laughs> no, it's good. Proof copies are great; they're really good. I mean, it's it's got its plus points because you do get them. I get, I've had books to review, and you get them. And uh, you've got them in advance. The downside is you can't talk to anyone about them because no one else has read them. <laughs> so, so you go, this is a really, really good book, but no one else has read it. I, I put my books out to beta readers and I, I've done that for people before as well, which is even earlier in the process when you're feeding back. And that's really interesting. I did that for Douglas for one, for his last one, or the one that's coming out in, in August. And I read it ages ago. And that's an interesting process because it's not even a complete novel yet. It still has work to be done on it. I always say if you watch four blokes and you listen to what we write, that's invariably what the first draft sounds like. Absolute nonsense. How do you find out when your books go out and getting that sort of feedback? Is that is that quite an important part of it as well? Yeah, I, I need to know what's working and what's not. So I used to not, I wasn't so big in that, but now I put it out. And it's a, it's a hateful thing to say, putting it out to friends doesn't work as well as putting out to non-friends. Friends have got a tendency nicely to say yes. Honest friends don't. I've got some good readers that are friends who are honest. That works. You need honest feedback. You really need someone to say, this doesn't work. That's a bit too long. I don't get that. Why should that, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that works well for me. I, I have to say, I haven't had it, but if someone came back and completely slaughtered the book, I'm not sure what I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously, listen, the fact that nobody's done that, you're obviously doing something right. Sadly, we've come to just about the end of the, the podcast. Obviously, as we are talking, I know you've probably already done your 2,000 words for the day, uh, which, again, is, is an impressive total. But in terms of, you know, you've got this book coming out next summer, you've got the, the short stories coming out. Are you just hoping as things open up, as bookshops open up, as, as the world kind of starts to open up it? Would you say you've not maybe not quite got a suitcase of books ready to go out into the world, but... You're ready. Well, I, I mean, I think where I'm at is 31 Bones is new because it's been out, but it was launched into COVID. And as a result, it's not not had the sort of traction. That's happened. A lot of books in the last year have, have not had the traction they should have had because either they were delayed, postponed, or when was that daft Thursday when was it 700 books in a day sort of thing was launched last year? And again, whenever it was this year. So for me, 31 Bones is still quite prevalent because the fact it's set in Spain, the fact it's kind of got a heist element to it, but it's also a kind of daughter not wanting to become a mother. Because the story effectively, I may as well say, the story effectively is that there's a bar in Spain in a town called El Descaro, which is, we're lucky enough to have a small apartment out in Spain in a place called Javier. El Descaro is loosely based on Javier. It's got a Costa del Crime element to it, although that was the 70s and 80s, there's still an element around and it's an expat pub, and they're running a property scam, which is actually happens a lot in Spain. And then the mother, who's in the late 70s, dies. Right in the first, not a giveaway. What, what transpires is she's got a group of people called the expatriates, and those guys are all in in the scam. On They're all off the wall. They're all field, field lawyer, field accountant, field uh, racing driver, field models. But they were that was their get out of jail. Let's get out of Spain. We've not done well here. Here's all the money, and the mother takes it. 
And when Daniela, who's the daughter, who hasn't seen her mum in 20 years, comes in, she suddenly finds she's on the hook for it. They think she knows something. The local police think she knows something about the death. And there's another gangster who thinks, who wants the money. So suddenly Daniela is on the hook for all of this after being an insurance agent on the phone in Glasgow for most of her life. So when I did that, I then wrote Six Wounds, which kind of takes that idea on and keeps this expatriates going. So it gives me a whole group to play with. So hopefully there's a third novel in this for that group. And as I said, there's a short story. But as I also said, I'm writing one at the moment, which is a kind of hardy boys, but the kids are 12 and 13. And if I'm brutally honest, they're me and my best mate when I used to live in Sims Hill who get involved in a gang issue where the, the, the gangster needs to break into a house to get a tape. On that tape is proof of what the gangster's up to, but the only people that can break into it are kids. So he forces the kids to break into it, and of course they get involved. It's a lot edgier than the Hardy Boys design. So for me, I'll just keep going. That, that's the idea. I'll see where the next one goes in the Daniela Colston series. And also my agent has that new book out with him just now. And then I'll just take that and keep going from there on in. Excellent. And uh, obviously, if people are, are listening, then check out 31 Bones if you yep. have had, had a chance to, to check out already. But Gordon, uh, thanks for joining me on the Read All About It podcast. It's been really good chatting to you about your, your favourite and not so favourite books. No problem. Thanks very much for the opportunity. It's been brilliant. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.